So it was a number of weeks ago I took a poll of our church. I asked three questions. The first two were explicitly connected. What is your favorite fruit? And what is your favorite vegetable? Innocent enough. They were disarming enough for my final question to be received well. What is your favorite book of the Bible? My favorite fruit is cucumber. How does that sit with you? Now, my favorite vegetable is celery. And I think I've had more vitriol this last week on that one than I've ever had in my life. Apparently, some people feel like celery shouldn't even be a food. But it, it is genuinely my favorite vegetable. And cucumber is my favorite fruit. In 1883, a tax was signed into law by the President of the United States regarding the import of vegetables. The tax was levied at ports upon import, and salespeople would, for the most part, willingly pay the taxes until the tomato. The argument by the importer was that tomatoes, as a fruit, were exempt from the tax. My favorite fruit. What was that again? And soon in time it will be yours by the end of this sermon. <laughs> but that's right. Cucumber. Although not part of this conflict, it has a similar level of argument. What is it? So it begs the question, what is a fruit or a vegetable? And here it is. Some definitions. A fruit is the usually edible reproductive body of a seed plant or anything that grows on a plant and is the means by which the plant gets its seed out into the world. Peaches are an easy example of this. This thing, this peach, grows on the tree so that it can continue to spread its seed and produce more peaches. The, the delicious part that we eat, sometimes over the sink, depending on the season, that, that just protects the seed. A vegetable must be part of a plant or the whole plant itself. A carrot is a root that we eat, leaves and all, depending on the person. No seed is spread in the growing of a carrot. Onions are a vegetable. Spinach is a vegetable. But this can get even more complicated regarding vegetables. Broccoli was the most popular vegetable in my sampling of LEFC. Broccoli is a vegetable, but it's also... A flower. Valentine's Day is coming, people. <laughs> Pre-order your broccoli bouquet to give to that special someone. What if I asked you which flower do you like eating the most? No one would likely think of broccoli. Now, the second most popular vegetable in my polling of LAFC was corn. And Lancaster County corn is good. Corn is a seed derived from the flower of the corn plant. It is technically a fruit. Now, more specifically, corn is a caryopsis, a type of fruit in which the fleshy part, like the part of the peach that you eat, and the seed are joined very tightly together. The fleshy part of the corn just isn't as thick as that delicious peach. Now, the caryopsis corn can get even more complicated because we use it as a Grain, meaning grains, will it? 
millet, wheat, oats are a type of fruit. Fruits, vegetables, grains, what on earth? And, and there was this identity crisis in this time about what is a tomato. Well, this hit the Supreme Court 10 years later in 1893. The highest court of the land declared the identity of a tomato as it pertains to taxes. So cast your vote, LEFC. Who thinks the tomato is a fruit? Anybody? You're thinking, all right, all right, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. Who thinks that the tomato is a vegetable? Mm. You think there's a right and wrong answer. We'll find out. Justice Horace Gray at the time summed up the argument very well. He wrote, botanically speaking, tomatoes are the fruit of a vine, just as are cucumbers, squashes, beans, and peas. But in the common language of the people, all these are vegetables which are grown in kitchen gardens and which, whether eaten cooked or raw, are like potatoes, carrots, parsnips, turnips, beets, God bless beets, cauliflower, cabbage, celery, and lettuce, usually served at dinner in, with, or after the soup, fish, or meats, which generally constitute the principal part of the meal, and not like fruits, generally as dessert. I have made two personal conclusions from this Supreme Court ruling. One, this Supreme Court ruling and words from the justice settles it that fruit salad, a bowl full of apples, some oranges, is an acceptable dessert option. It is. There are people out there that are thinking, where's my chocolate? Stop it. <laughs> Two, there is and forever will be a conflict about identity. Always. What is the tomato? What is the cucumber? How is it used? How do we talk about it? Who or what something is? It? And, but this isn't new. This was something that was at the very beginning of the establishment of the church. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus? These were the questions that were in the minds of the disciples for the years that they journeyed with him. And one moment in particular sticks out as we begin our new series today. Our new series is Rock of Ages. It's a series on First and Second Peter. Will you join me in prayer as we begin our series? Holy Spirit, I invite you to come into this place, into this region. And would our study of first and second period over the many, many months ahead, Lord, would it be able to set us up well for what it means for us to be Christians in this space, in this environment. Thank you for the word made flesh. Lord, would we carry that in our hearts well. Guide us in our time today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. One of my favorite verses for a time was the last verse 
in the Gospel of John, the very last verse in the last to be written Gospel, written by an eyewitness to the events. He says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. There are miracles, there are things that that happened with Jesus that are not documented. And this verse, I feel like it gives room for mystery and wonder. What stories do you think Jesus' disciples told as they aged? What stories would they tell? As they discipled other people, what stories did they tell of their time with Jesus? The Apostle Peter, author of First and Second Peter, would definitely have some stories. Peter is a remarkable gift to the church through Scripture. Brennan Manning wrote in one place that Peter is the most well-developed character in the Gospels aside from Jesus. He is presented in all his misery and magnificence. What stories would Peter tell? What lessons would he share with us? And we get, in First and Second Peter, we get a sharpened Peter, an older Peter, a Peter that has lived about 30 years past Christ's time on the cross. But you'll see that there are some things you just can't take out of a person. I mean, think about it. Pastor Tony hasn't lived in Kansas for 30 years. He still tells stories about Kansas. Last Sunday, we didn't get just one, we got two Kansas stories. I even think Pastor Tony is in Kansas right now. I'm not sure it counts as preaching unless I mention Kansas. Five times. Five times. That'll preach. Peter. What has he experienced in the Gospels? What has he experienced in Acts? Man, would he have stories to tell. Oh, man. I, I wondered what stories would he tell. The ones that we, we, do, that we do have in Scripture. And I, I think one of the stories would be his huge theological shift that happens in Acts 10. We're, we're not turning there right now. But Peter has this huge theological shift. Peter and his crew were in Joppa. It's a town near the sea. And as the crew arrives around noon, Peter goes up to the roof to pray. He takes a moment before his prayers. And I believe he, he, he looks out over the waters. I mean, he was a fisherman, right? There were likely moments that he reflected on being a fisher of men, but also remembered what it was like to be on the sea with friends and family. I can see him looking out from the roof, the smallest twinkle in his eye as he sees the water rise and fall, remembering something from the past. And then without even thinking about it, his mind is checking the weather. You always got to check the weather to determine if, if the evening, if that evening was going to be good for the nighttime fishermen in Joppa. Peter, Peter had a frustrating nighttime of fishing one time, but there, but there was one moment that stuck with him. Jesus made him breakfast on the shore. Jesus asked, do you love me? And it came as a reminder to Peter that Peter was made uniquely and loved by God. 
I, th- I think these were maybe the thoughts that were tumbling through his head before they were interrupted by his stomach. It was noon. He was hungry. He was anticipating a meal, but it was time to pray the hours. It was in this time of prayer, this scheduled time, this integrated time of being and doing that something happens to Peter. (laughs) It's unreal. It's a trance. A trance happens to Peter. And this is the word that's used in our scriptures. And looking at the Greek for this word, the meaning is to be beside himself. It's as if Peter is able to see himself and the world he is in and how he's operating within it. He gets to see the frame and lens through which he views all of life. And there's a vision while in this trance and it's filled with birds and reptiles and animals. And a voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You know what he says? No, 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 I'm not falling for that. I know what is clean. I know what is unclean. But well done, Peter, is not the response. And the same thing is repeated again and again. And at this point in his theology, God is for Jews only. He had never seen anything else. Jesus is for Jews only. There is no reason for Peter to think otherwise. But now God says what was unclean is clean. And this was new. And then there's a knock on the door. Peter's trance is over. He hears that a Gentile had an experience, a vision of an angel, and they were to go find Peter. Peter goes to the Gentile home of Cornelius, likely his first time ever to set foot into a Gentile home. What would he find? He would have no idea. Why would he ever go into a Gentile's home? And in the home, he hears the testimony of Cornelius. And then Peter responds, starting in Acts 10, verse 34. He writes, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Post that on Twitter or Facebook without the reference. See how the world reacts. Jesus is for the Gentile. If you aren't Jewish, you're a Gentile. Peter's theology on God and who God was for changed forever. I think Peter would tell that story. I think he'd tell that story. It just changed him so much. But there are others. I think Peter would go a little bit further back. I would think about if he was sitting with people he would likely tell about the time that he saw Jesus in all his glory. Or he physically saw the fullness of Jesus. Do you know this one? Peter, James, and John, the triad, at the invitation of Jesus, started to climb a mountain. 
I was on the mountains this weekend. I was uh, in the Whites in, in New Hampshire. And one thing we did was we checked the weather constantly. You don't want to be on a summit when weather's coming in. And Peter, as a fisherman, used those same skills in that time to check the weather before going up into a mountain. He didn't want to be caught in a storm. It only takes a second. And know this, it can save your life. The mountaintops looked good, and there was no reason not to walk with Jesus at his invitation. So the four of them, four, just four, they get to the top, and Jesus starts praying. Somewhere in this prayer, a full revelation of Jesus burst forth from him. Jesus' face becomes like the sun, his clothes blindingly white, like a flash of lightning. Shielding their eyes, making sure that everybody is okay, two more people are now at the top of the mountain. Peter, James, and John had never met them before, but they knew who the two party crashers were. This was Moses and Elijah. Now, when Peter, James, and John were kids, these were their superheroes. These were the, the superheroes of their youth that were totally real, but also could never be real because they'd never met them before. These were fables. These were myths in many ways. When Peter, James, and John played as kids... As Moses, they boldly spoke to Pharaoh. They got to free their people from Egypt. They thought about, it's my turn to split the sea. They thought about who got to play Elijah and who had to play Ahab. They wanted to be the hero. They wanted to be the last remaining prophet. The Elijah who asked for the rain to return. So on the mountaintop, a cloud comes over them, and a voice from the cloud says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Peter is terrified. Moses and Elijah were just reduced to their place of service to God. They are not greater and they are not equal. Peter hears Moses and Elijah have their place, but Jesus, he is the son. Listen to him. And as a terrified person, he just collapses to the ground. The cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah gone. And Jesus walks over with a gentle touch and says, don't be afraid. It's hard not to be afraid when you see the fullness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. And this is the transfiguration. That would be a story to hear from Peter. But honestly, I think he'd go back further. In the Bible app, I put some bonus references with Peter. They are also up on the screen behind me. Take a picture or use the app. Look them up this week. These were some of the scriptures that I read through in preparation for just understanding a little bit about who is Peter, what did his life look like, and how did he journey with Jesus. It's in the app. It's also in the small group, the life group discussion questions. I think Peter would talk the most about the moment, that one moment right before the transfiguration, before he saw the glory of God, before he saw the fullness of Christ. It is a moment, a week before the transfiguration, that sets us up for Peter, his identity, and how it will define the two epistles he gives us. 
And this coming up is that one moment in particular that sticks out. It's Matthew 16, 5 through 19. It's page 917 in the church Bibles. Why don't we turn there? Matthew 16, 5 through 19, page 917 in the church Bibles. Follow along with me. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, Is it because we didn't bring any bread? Aware of this discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood what he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? I want to stop here. Between the conversation with the disciples in verses 5 through 12, and then coming to the region of Caesarea Philippi in verse 13, they would be walking about 25 miles. In the four Gospels, the closer we as Christ followers and readers get to Jesus' time on the cross, the more we see Jesus respond to his disciples with a sense of urgency, almost with a higher level of crisis. There is an emotional strain in Jesus as we get closer to the torture of the cross and for his deep desire for his disciples to get it, to understand who he was and is. The disciples have been with Jesus at this point for two years now, and we're about six months out from the cross. The disciples should get it by now. And stemming from an earlier interaction that they had with the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus uses bread and leaven to come back to that interaction to make a point about the dangerous teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But the disciples missed it and just thought Jesus was advising them not to buy groceries for them in verse 7. And I feel like I would be that disciple that would say, we didn't bring any bread. Were, were we supposed to bring bread? Boy, if Jesus wanted bread, he should have told us. If he told me, I would have done it. But he sets them straight. He tells them what it's about. And they start this 25-mile journey. What would that tension be like for those 25 miles? Ever get in an argument with somebody and then have to get in the car with them? You turn the radio on, and then they turn it off. I, th I think in that moment it's just over. That's the tension I feel. With a level of urgency, Jesus gives them the question in verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they talk back in verse 14. We're in verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And just like my two softy questions in my survey, what's your favorite fruit and what's your favorite vegetable, Jesus was just warming them up, seeing what they would say, seeing if they were paying attention, and then, bam, he asked the question he needed to ask them, what about you? Who do you say I am? And the answer to this question should be part of every single person's bullet theology. If you haven't already experienced the level of vitriol that exists between denominations or church traditions over what is worth fighting over is astounding. And for myself, it's frequently disappointing what churches between themselves will argue about. And every fight, every fighter, both sides can proof text their way to a victory of arrogance. But this fight, the answer to this question, the question right here is worth dying over. Who do you say Jesus is? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Lord God, eternal God, creator of heaven and earth, living God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess that we have sinned against you. We've sinned in thought and word and deed, and we have sinned in what we have done and what we have left undone. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, might we, LEFC, own this declaration that Peter has made, that you, Lord Jesus, are the Messiah. Amen. Verse 17, Jesus responds to Simon, to Simon Peter. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this is the commissioning of Peter for the work ahead. A commissioning by Jesus himself. And this moment with Jesus is completely unrepeatable by virtue of the fact that Peter was the first to say that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus responds with a rabbinic blessing. Jesus, as the builder of the church, knows that it needs a rock to build upon. This is Peter. After a lifetime of ministry, Peter will look back and he'll look forward and he'll give words for us to carry in the Holy Scriptures. This is first and second Peter. The third question I asked in my survey of the church was, what is your favorite book of the Bible? If I didn't ask you then a couple weeks ago, think about it now. If you could... Which book would you say is your favorite? Tell the person next to you, if you're willing, 
personally, I said James. James is mine. Leviticus is a close second. But the four Gospels are really hard to compete with as well. The three most popular books of the Bible based on the sampling of this church in order were Psalms, James, and Romans. I had votes for Genesis, Deuteronomy, Habakkuk, bonus points if you can spell that right your first try, and First and Second Kings. None for First and Second Peter. Now, there are people out there that would claim these epistles as favorites. I know they are there. I have some speculation about why First and Second Peter doesn't come up more often as a favorite book for our context. Peter, at the end of his life, and before, as tradition says, he was crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as Christ. Peter writes us, and the message is not exactly something that people can quickly connect to in our modern day. The emperor Nero at the beginning of 1 Peter was just a threat in the distance. But by chapter 4, Nero is using Christians as candles to light his streets. First century persecution is not what most of us have experienced in our context. It's not what we've seen in it's not what we're even fully aware of. We do share something with those same persecuted Christians, though, where we find our identity. As Jesus, I'm sorry, as Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah, and then Jesus identified Peter as the rock, this identification will carry with him through first and second Peter. Who are we? Peter, as our friend, reminds us, just as he reminded those in the first century, that Christ is the living cornerstone of God's temple. And God is building us as living stones. Peter is the rock. He was the first to declare. We get to follow after him to make that same bold declaration about Jesus and his kingdom. Identity is incredibly important. There are a number of tools we use for identity. Have you heard of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, the MMTI, or, or the DISC profile? These are just two commonly used introspective questionnaires, questionnaires to narrow down how people understand their surroundings, make decisions, or give some level of who they are as a person. Uh, in the fa last 15 years, the Enneagram of personality has received a greater attention. Secular and Christian sources are, are writing about it and applying the information so that uh, it can be used for good. In our current age, social media platforms and internet media have offered inventories that identify which Hogwarts house the tester might be part of, which wand you hold, which Patronus you might have, which office character we are, which Disney princess we have the most in common with, and even what kind of sandwich we might be. <laughs> These lighter inventories can feel a bit like a party trick. And when lumped in with the more respected inventories, it can kind of reduce the overall takeaways. 
All inventories considered, I believe the underlying reason for submitting to such tests is many people desire a greater understanding of where they fit in a society. Who am I? I am a high D, E-N-T-J, eight with a seven wing. I'm also in the house of Ravenclaw. My wand is beechwood with a dragon heartstring core 12 and a half inches. My patronus is an oryx. Dwight Schrute is my office character. <laughs> Mulan is my Disney princess. And oddly enough, I'm also a hamburger with lettuce instead of a bun. Thank you, BuzzFeed. Some of these seemingly hollow items can create a sense of community, a vocabulary that can be shared among a group of enthusiasts, especially in times of wondering who you are. Peter was a Jew, a fisherman. He was brother to Andrew. He had a large house. He was married. He was business partner to James and John. He was uneducated. He talked with an accent. And he received the most severe rebukes from Jesus. He was an attempted murderer. Peter was also at the core of Jesus' ministry, part of the inner triad of James, Peter, and John. He went everywhere with Jesus. He was the leader of the 12 disciples, often said to be G Peter and those with him. His name is always first in the lists of disciples. And he was the first to be called by name by Jesus. He walked on water on his way to Jesus. He witnessed Jesus heal the man he murderously attacked. The lovable, perpetually misunderstood and criticized Peter was declared the foundational leader of the church. The most well-developed character in scripture apart from Jesus. And he gives us two letters built upon who we are and who we are called to be. This is something we need to listen to. Jew, Gentile, fisherman, preacher, persecuted, privileged, elect, married, single, children, no single, sorry, no children, uneducated or educated, fruit, vegetable, grains, flowers. It could feel like an identity crisis. But Peter has something for us. And so we as a preaching team and as a church commit to First and Second Peter over the next number of months. I implore you to read through First and Second Peter. Each book might take you 15 to 20 minutes each. Look for who Peter says we are in Christ. That foundation won't ever go away. He writes to tell us, that this isn't our home, that we are a royal priesthood, we are God's elect. That is our identity. Then honestly answer the question that Jesus asked Peter. Who do you say I am? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, all that we do rests on who we say Jesus Christ is. 
We have been taught for years. We've heard stories in scripture. We've heard teaching from this stage, Lord. But in our time to come, in our weeks ahead, in our days ahead, even just the hours ahead, would we be willing to be honest with ourselves about who we say Jesus is? the foundation of all we are as Christians. Lord, would we be honest with ourselves. Send us into the weeks ahead brave enough to give an answer to that question and teachable enough to hear the message that Peter has given us. In your most holy name I pray, amen. In the spirit of the apostle Peter, as he opens his first epistle, the very first verses, to everyone gathered in this room, for all that have chosen to declare Christ as your king, for those who have not yet, for those that know who they are, and for those that declare who Christ is through the power of the Holy Spirit, and for those that still wonder, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. Come back next week as we dive into 1 Peter. Grace and peace to you all.